Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. Good morning. My name is Renee Walter, and I have been blessed to call this church family my family for many, many years. I have the scripture reading up today, and it's from CSB or, uh, translation. It is John 2, 18 through 25. So the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for, for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy the temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. While in, he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them, since he knew all of them. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I was not expecting that, I'm sorry. That's a lot brighter. Good morning, you guys. How are you? Good. I, uh, for those who don't know, my name's Scott Brett. I get to serve as the pastor here. And if you haven't already, open up your Bibles to John 2. John 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, it's good to see many new faces and many old faces. I will say that as you're turning in your scripture, uh, I've been away all week at a pastor's conference, and I'm uh, grateful that my wife survived the week with my kids. Um, but I will say uh, that, that at this pastor's conference, uh, it's uh, it was over in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, we pretty much for about 24 hours, uh, over three days, were under the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Uh, it, I added it up, it's about 24 hours. So uh, needless to say, my brain is fried and my heart is full, um, and I've just been uh, more and more amazed by how impressive and amazing this book really is, and so I'm hoping that, I'm hoping that we're... Uh, we're going to be in agreement with that this morning as we open it up. Uh, let, me, let me kind of remind us of where we've been. And now Renee read so well that uh, she read a passage that we actually studied last week. Uh, and that was in the context of the temple cleansing, right? You know the story. Jesus rides on the donkey into Jerusalem and on Palm Sunday. And where does he go? Not to the government's uh, palace or the governor's mansion. He goes straight to the temple and he assesses and then on Monday he goes in and he cleanses the temple. He flips some tables, right? And, and that's where it was, right? So we, that was two weeks ago on Palm Sunday. We talked about consumeristic compromises within the local church, within the body of believers as we gather together, where, where, where today we're, we're pretty, pretty familiar with those sorts of things, right? They've actually become almost commonplaces in some churches where like it's just where we come into this to consume, right? To, 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 to make it about us, right? And so, so we make this time about the things that I feel like I need, right? So, so we go church shopping, right? We go shop around for a church to, to find that one special church that has everything that we're looking for. You know, you know that, that Christian softball league for dad to jump in, right? And, and then the 60-piece orchestra up on stage to make sure that your prodigal of a daughter violinist can join the band and show off her skill and 
And then they also have to have the coffee bar out with a barista at it where we can order your grande, iced, half-sweet, half-calf, tin-pump vanilla, upside-down latte with soy milk, a shot of espresso, and caramel drizzle, which you ordered through the church's app, and they served you as you walked in. Or you walk in right into a laser beam of a light show that reminds you more of a Star Wars fight in the space than it does a church. And, and you're in this worship service and it doesn't last any longer than 60 minutes. If it does, they give you a $15 gift card to Dunkin' Donuts on your way out to, for the inconvenience. Now some of those are exaggerations and some of those are realities. But all that to say, we're, we're kind of used to some of the compromises that can happen in the gathering. And so that was two weeks ago. And then last week for Easter Sunday, we, we looked at what Jesus said when he said, uh, they asked, what sign do you give to, to give you the authority to do these things? Like what sign shows that you have the authority to come and flip the tables up in here, right? And, and Jesus doesn't do a sign. He tells them a sign. He says what? He says, you destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Now, we know that that was pointing to his death and his resurrection. And that sign shows that he has authority over the temple. And that meant it changed everything about how we relate to God. Which means right here, right now, in this space, in this very room, we have people filled with the presence of God. And he's here. So it changes everything, right? But we're going back to this text for a third time because we're just going to try to wring every part of we can out of it, right? There's it's still so much that we can we can look at here. And today we're going to go back to this conversation about consumerism in the church, right? We're, and, and we're not just going to look at it in the context of the local body. We're going to look at it in our own faith and how we relate to God. Because in reality, what happens here is simply a reflection of what's going on in here. Not just in Pastor Scott's heart, but in each of our hearts. And so the question that we're asking today, it's a big, hard question, is this. How has our consumer-centered world contaminated my faith? How has our consumer-centered world, consumer-driven world, contaminated how I relate to God and how God relates to me, or how I perceive Him? Now, our text this morning is a transition between the temple cleansing uh, and, and, and the uh, conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. And it's a really big conversation. And it talks about how you're not going to be able to see uh, heavenly things unless you're born again. So that's, that's next week. Um, but, but with this transition passage, uh, we need to make sure we're understanding where we're at. Because it, it, it's, it's contextual, right? So Jesus just did some heavy lifting in the temple. And it's really a big deal. And again, these, these religious leaders are asking him, like, what gives you the right? Like, what give, what, like, show us something to show us that you have the authority to do what you're doing here, right? That's, that's where we're at. And then Jesus tells them something, and they're so discombobulated uh, and, and by his actions. They're asking for his credentials. So the NIV, we're, 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 just so you know, we're... we're we're back at verse uh, 20, uh, 19, or 20, uh, sorry, 18. So the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? What sign can you give us to prove that you have authority to do all of this? So in other words, this is not a trick question. What are they asking for? What, what word does it use? What are they asking for? What sign? What sign, right? 
A sign, or what we would often more likely call it, is a, a miracle, a work, right? And so, so just think about this. In John, this gospel, he records seven, right? There's first in John 2, Jesus turns the water into wine. And then in John 4, he heals uh, an official's dying son. And then in John 5, he makes the lame to walk, right? Some guy can't walk, and boom, he starts walking because of Jesus. And then in John 6, he feeds 5,000 people with how much bread and fish? Five loaves of bread and two fish. And then if that's not enough to impress you, what does he do next? He walks on water. Just walks right on top of it. And then in John 9, he gives the blind man sight. And then John 11, probably the chief one of them all, what does he do? He raises who from the dead? Lazarus. Raises a guy from the dead who's been there for some time. Probably a bit of a stench. He's like, no, just get up. I'm not done with you. Go. So he records these seven signs, and, and, but he also, John says at the end of this book that there were many more that Jesus did that he didn't record. And so that's kind of what we're seeing in the text today. But I could keep going. We could go look at the other signs in the other Gospels. But, but all that to say, all of that, can we agree that Jesus can do some pretty crazy things? Like he can do some pretty, pretty intense things. I mean, he could have blown their minds. Could he not have? Hey, what sign do you do? Oh, watch this. Cattle start to fly. And then, and then the pigeons start talking. And then the sheep get up and walk and they, they morph into a human, right? Like, he could have done all sorts of crazy stuff to have been like, is that enough for you or do you want more? Like, he could have blown their minds. But does he do that? In a way, sure. But he doesn't do a sign for them. He just tells them of one that's coming. But he doesn't do one. And so there's, there's another time in the passage or in, in this book where, where the Jews come up and they ask Jesus for a sign, right? They, they do a sign, right? To prove yourself. And do you know what Jesus said in return? In, in Matthew 12, verse 39, he says, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Now, I want to press the pause button right here because I think you guys know where this is going and I want to make a disclaimer real quick. You and I follow Jesus because of the signs that he did, right? Like we, we've decided that Jesus has our allegiance. We've placed all our confidence and all of our faith in him because he was destroyed and he raised to life. We believe he is who he is because he walked on water, he fed the 5,000, he healed the lame and the blind, he raised the dead to life. Like we believe because of Jesus doing all of these signs. So, so the author of this gospel recorded these signs so that we would believe in Jesus. It makes sense, right? So, so what I'm about to say in the tone of this message isn't to discredit the importance of God's miraculous wonders and works in the world. Or to say that they don't happen anymore. I'm not trying to diminish the role that they play in bringing us to faith in Jesus. That's not what I'm doing this morning. 
So, so with all of that said, let me press the play button. Throughout the Gospels, one thing seems to be pretty consistent. That Jesus seems to criticize faith that requires signs. Just, it's just, it happens several times. Jesus seems to, to point out the need that people have to see signs in order for them to believe in him. It just seems pretty consistent that he criticizes it. That seems to be what's happening here in verse 23. Did you see that? While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. All right, so we're going to look at verse 24 a little bit more in a minute, but, but does this sound like it's all rainbows and unicorns? Like, is this a happy passage? Like, are we jumping with glee when, when we find that Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them? No, this is, this is quite nerve-wracking, right? And, and the meaning of this passage is not well-rooted across commentaries and theologians. There's some confusion about this, but, but, but the tone of it is not gladness, it's intensity. Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them. But it says they believed in his name. These people in Jerusalem during the Passover, many believed in his name. But what does it say next? When. When they saw the signs he was doing. Now in John 6, we're going to see some Jews. That's probably going to happen next year when we get to that part of John. Um, in John 6, we see Jews walk up to Jesus and they ask him, hey, what can we do to perform the works of God, right? And Jesus says, uh, to do the works of God, you must believe the one he sent. You must believe in the one he sent, which obviously is Jesus. This is the work of God. Did you, you know what their response was? Their response was, what sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you? What are you going to perform and then they do this. Listen, this is dirty. Listen to what they do. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness just as it was written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Can you hear the tone here? I didn't just read it in there. It sounded like I was kind of snobby when I read that. That's just my general nature. But when, when we're reading this, can you hear the tone? They, it's, it's like this. Do a trick better than Moses. Moses has our allegiance. You have to beat him in order for us to follow you. Moses gave them manna from heaven. Now Jesus obviously says, nope, that was my father, not Moses. Let's get something straight. And then what does he say? In that passage, he says, no, I am the bread of life from heaven. It's like Jesus alone wasn't enough for them. They needed Jesus to do a trick. You know, I love what D.A. Carson said in commentating on this passage uh, when, when, when the Jews asked Jesus for a sign. This is what he says. He says, a sign that would satisfy them, presumably some sort of miraculous display performed on demand, would have signaled the domestication of God. That sort of God 
does powerful stunts to maintain allegiance. And that kind of allegiance is not worth having. So let me try to illustrate it in a way that might make a little bit more sense. How many of you are, uh, you watch TV, how many of you uh, are familiar with the show The Voice? Just show of hands, The Voice, right? You know, you know what I'm talking about. You know that show where you have contestants come up on a stage and there's four judges that are on these chairs and they have their back to the performer and the performer starts to perform and, and do great or terrible and depending on how great or terrible they do, uh, they either don't turn or they do what? Bam! And then the chair just magically turns them around. And then they just get to see who it is. It's basically the idea that, that, uh, that, that, that looks don't matter in music. It should just be the voice, right? So, Picture Jesus on stage. And you and I are in the judge's seat. And we're waiting for him to perform good enough for us to turn around. Is that not what this is? He's got to perform to a good enough standard in order for us to smash that button of faith and just turn around. Yes, God, I'll choose you. There's a kind of faith that believes God that way. There's a kind of faith that requires God to perform miraculous things again and again for the faith to be sustained. But who's Who's sitting in the judge's chair in that illustration? You and me. You and me. As this this sort of faith still is centering around you and I. And it revolves around our felt needs and our perception of a good performance. So, so what I would put before you, and, and, and again, this is, this is a tough passage, and, 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 but basically what, what I'm seeing here is that they're demonstrating a kind of faith that Jesus doesn't himself entrust them to, himself to. It's a kind of faith that I'll call a consumeristic faith. Can you say that with me? One, two, three. Consumeristic faith. Let me try to define it for you. Consumeristic faith is a sign-seeking faith that bases its belief and confidence on one allegiance through great feats of miraculous power that benefits the believer. So this is the kind of faith that places trust in what can most easily and fully satisfy my felt needs. So one commentator on this passage, he said, Miracles do indeed assist the children of God in arriving at the truth But it does not amount to actual believing when they admire the power of God so as merely to believe that it is true, but not to subject themselves wholly to it. So so what I'm suggesting, that that this is the kind of faith that they have here in verse 23, that when Jesus did the signs they wanted to see him do, they're like, all right, I'll push the button. You can be on my team, Jesus. But here's, here's the problem. Here's the problem with that kind of faith. That the kind of consumeristic, me-centered understanding of relating to God. This sign-requiring kind of faith, it just doesn't endure. It doesn't last. 
I mean, I can quote tons of examples in Scripture, but, but, but I'll give you the one that's actually mentioned here. You remember at the beginning, what season was it in Jerusalem? Jesus was in Jerusalem during the what? The Passover. You remember that, right? We've talked about it in the last three weeks. Several times, let me just remind you, that, that big event that happened many years before this where Israel was in slavery to Egypt and God heard the cries of his people, did many signs and wonders, ten of them to be precise, to show off his power to the nations and to set Israel free from that slavery. And God leads them out into the wilderness, right? And he makes a covenant with them. So Israel has just seen the most incredible acts of power from God. And they get out into the wilderness. How many days is it? I don't know, just a few. And they're already making their own idols. You, th- you think the kind of faith that, that's requiring the, the ten plagues or the, the ten miraculous works of God to keep persisting over and over again? To, to sustain their faith in God? No, no, no. That, that wasn't enough. Like, it's just like, it's here, right? This, this Passover story even reminds us that the kind of faith that requires God to keep persisting and doing miracle after miracle, work after work, sign after sign, it just doesn't even last. It doesn't endure. Even the Passover sign itself wasn't enough to maintain and preserve their faith. And that's because Jesus' miracles, the signs that Jesus does, did, aren't primarily designed to sustain faith. Now, again, I'm, uh, there's, there's some nuances here, but I, I want to to get to a a main truth, and I'll I'll explain it a little bit more deeply. These miracles or these signs are designed to demand faith, not sustain it. Do you understand the difference? The signs that Jesus does demand that we believe in him, but they're not meant to sustain our faith. Per, primarily, right? So, so that's not always true. I mean, there, there are st- stories in Scripture, but, but it seems that there are, uh, there are unbelievers who behold Christ's glory through these signs, and they come to faith in him. And there comes a time in our lives, right? There comes a time when enough miracles have been performed. The truth has been proved. And now we receive by faith, and we walk by faith. And yet there's a way for our faith in Christ to stay requiring the signs that first draw us to him. There's a way where where our faith in Christ requires Jesus to keep doing some wonder after wonder, to keep up on the stage and, and keep performing great trick after great trick just to keep our faith in attention. If you don't believe me... Um, I would just put before you uh, maybe an example from your own life, right? When, what's the first thing that happens when you and I enter into a pretty intense trial and, and uh, time of suffering? What happens? Well, we doubt God. The first thing to start shaking is our faith. Our faith shakes. We ask, well, God, hey, what's, what's happening here? What's going on? We, we, we start to interpret God's faithfulness and his goodness towards us based on our circumstances. God seems not to be preserving or providing for our felt needs and our circumstances, and so we begin to, begin to question and we doubt God. 
This is a kind of faith that, that only conditions itself on Jesus' persistence in performing spectacles. And it won't last. Because again, who's still at the center of that faith? You and me. Additionally, this kind of faith that we're examining this morning is one that Jesus himself doesn't even believe. Look at verse 24. You should still have your Bibles open. Verse 24. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man for he himself knew what was in man. If you write in your Bibles, which I would strongly encourage you to do, uh, circle the word entrust. Uh, Some translations might say trust. Um, And then what I want you to do is draw a line back to the word in verse 23 when it says many believed. Many believed. Because here's the funny thing. Those are the two same Greek words. They're not different. So they believed in his name, but Jesus didn't believe in self to them. They trusted in his name. Jesus did not trust himself to them. It's the same word. It's a word play. And so, 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 so we have this dynamic where you have people who trusted in Jesus when they saw the signs that he did, but Jesus didn't trust himself to them. Now we know that's not Jesus' nature whenever, whenever somebody comes to true faith in Christ, right? We know that Jesus' nature is to give himself wholly unto the one who receives him, right? He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So, so we know this, right? But this passage just seems to be, at a minimum, whispering, in my mind, shouting that Jesus just doesn't trust consumeristic faith. And Jesus doesn't trust the kind of faith that requires him to keep performing again and again and again. Guys, with Jesus, seeing is believing is not his approach. It's just, it's just not. Until I see this, then I'm not going to trust him. Until he does this, I'm not going to believe him. Now, Obviously, that's a pretty blatant, rash, prideful way to see things, but, but it, it can be a bit more subtle than that. In fact, it can be dangerously subtle. It can sound something like, like this. Well, he's not healing my cancer. Does he love me? Or it can sound like, hey, God's not giving me my dream job. Does he even, is he paying attention to me? Or it may even sound like my family is just falling apart and God's not fixing it. What, what, does he care? It can be very subtle. But I, I like the way that, that Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal Prophet, it's about the book of Jonah, He says it this way. He says, when you say, I won't serve you, God, or I won't trust you, God, I won't believe in you, God, if you don't give me X, then X is your true bottom line. It's your highest love, your real God, 
the thing you most trust and rest in. So what is your ex? And like, why, what, let, me just, let me just carry this a little bit further. Why would you expect God to grant you one of your idols that you worship more than him? Do you expect him to do that? God, I, I would really love you more if you gave me this. He loves you too much to let you do that, to grant you what, he, what you're asking for. Because if the ex in this conversation isn't Jesus himself, which is, by the way, the whole point of the gospel, that we get God again, if, if Jesus isn't the ex in that conversation, then you're relating, very likely, relating to God with a kind of consumeristic faith. And it's a kind of faith that Jesus doesn't trust himself to. And you know what's most terrifying about all of this is that Jesus possesses himself the ability to know what's in your heart. That he knows the condition of your faith. He knows what, what, what kind of belief, what kind of trust you're relating to him with. Did you notice? Look at verse 24. Again, going into verse 25. He knew them all. He didn't need anyone to come and testify about or explain man. He knows what's in man. Jesus, Jesus isn't like, hey, can somebody come explain this to me? Like, why are they doing this? Like, why are humans this way? No, no, Jesus is God and he searches hearts and he knows minds. He has this divine omniscience about him. And he can... He can see through flesh and bone and he can see to the very core of our faith and he can see what kind of faith we're trusting him with. And the kind of faith that keeps requiring him to perform signs is, is one that he just doesn't seem to trust. But there's a, there's a much deeper kind of faith that Jesus commends to us. It's a kind of faith that he says is beautiful beyond compare. It's a deeper kind of faith that runs deep within God's sustaining and empowering grace. It's a kind of faith that doesn't have the provision of our felt needs at its center. It's a kind of faith that doesn't have you and I seated at the judge's chair waiting for God to perform good enough to earn our confidence. It, it's, a, it's a sure and steady and satisfied faith that stands in trials and it persists through pain. It's summed up in a verse, it's this. It's Jesus said, huh, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. We'll call this a kind of satisfied faith. It's a subjected faith, not a subjective. You hear me? I'm not saying faith is subjective. It's a subjected faith, a satisfied faith, a faith that says Jesus himself is enough. It's a faith that doesn't need Jesus to keep doing tricks like a dog. It's a, it's a faith that's content with Jesus and him alone. Now, you've probably got to ask this question, does this kind of faith even exist? Do we see examples of it? Have people followed Jesus simply because of who he is and not all that he gives? 
Absolutely. I can't help but think of uh, Matthew the tax collector, right? Matthew's this guy who's hated by everyone because he's, he's collecting taxes for the Roman Empire and, and, and he's a traitor to the Jewish people as he was perceived. And, and Jesus, out of all the people in Jerusalem, comes up to Matthew. And he just says, follow me. There's no context, no, no sign or wonder that happens, no request from Matthew. Hey, can you just sit real quick and roll over maybe? And, and maybe talk? Do something, do something to impress me. Is there, is there any of that for Matthew? No, it's just him and Jesus. And Matthew decides that this man who just walked up and said, follow me, that he's worth giving up everything for. And Matthew leaves his job, his very lucrative job, behind and follows Jesus. Not only that, when we, when we get to John 4, we're going to see that many Samaritans came out from the city to meet with Jesus. And, and they, it says in verse 41 that they believed because of his many words. Because of his words, many more became believers. So what I'm, what I'm trying to put before you this morning... If there's anything that I'm arguing, any, any, any truth claim to, to make this morning, is that Jesus, is, uh, Jesus alone is enough. Jesus alone is enough for our faith. He's all we need for a sustaining, satisfied faith. We don't need anything else. He, he doesn't owe us anything. He's already given it all. And so, so, I mean, even, even though we just read these three verses, and, and, and there's a, we've kind of gone through a long pathway, the, the argument that I see Jesus making about his nature and character this morning is that he is enough. That Jesus really is enough. He's enough for you. He's enough to satisfy your heart. You know, I, I love a, a, a song. Sorry. I love a song that, that, that comes on the radio quite frankly. It may have been a few years ago. It might still be playing. I don't listen to the radio anymore. Podcasts and Spotify. Who needs radio? But it, it's a song called uh, More Than Anything by Natalie Grant. Now, I grew up with Natalie Grant. She was my mom's favorite singer, so it was weird to listen to her. But, but there's this song that she sings, and it's called More Than Anything. And let me just read you the lyrics. It says, I know if you wanted to, you could wave your hand, spare me this heartache and change your plan. And I know in a second you could take this pain away, but even if you don't, I pray. And here's the chorus. Help me want the healer more than the healing. Help me want the savior more than the saving. Help me want the giver more than the giving. Help me want you, Jesus, more than anything. And so the, the soul-searching question that we must ask ourselves this morning is, is Christ alone enough for you? Is Jesus enough for you? Now, objectively, he is. Like, we, we can all agree, he is enough for us. But subjectively, your, your life, your faith, your walk with him, is he enough for you? We sing, in Christ alone, do we really believe in Christ alone? Or do you need him to keep doing some tricks in order to maintain your allegiance? 
Do you need him to keep supplying your felt needs to keep you believing in him? Guys, what I'm, what I'm saying this morning is that this book talks about a kind of deeper faith, a faith that can last, a faith that is sure, it's deeper, it's more satisfying, and it's available to you right now, not because you get there by yourself, but because God's grace can abound to you. It's a kind of faith that can pray like Jesus Father, take this cup from me, but not my will. What does he say? Your will be done. Now, I mean, this, this all sounds really good, right? I, I hope, right? If you're sitting there like, this doesn't sound good. <laughs> Maybe we need to rework some things, but there's probably a percentage of you in here who are hearing all of this and you're thinking, man, this, I mean, yeah, that does sound pretty good. That sounds pretty good. It sounds great, actually, but it's, it's pretty unrealistic because it doesn't, it doesn't touch into my life. It doesn't know, Scott, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I've come out of. You don't know what I'm in right now. And I just can't get there. Believe me, believe me, I've tried. I know that's how I should be believing. I know that's how I should feel, but I, I just don't right now, and I don't know what to do. And, and, and as you're hearing this message, you don't hear words of life. You hear, you hear words of death. You hear, you hear condemnation. You hear and feel words about guilt. And all you do right now is you just feel guilty because you're not there. You're, you're feeling uh, guilty because you don't have this deeper, this stronger, this more satisfying kind of faith. And so let me just, I hope everybody's looking at me right now. It's okay to not be okay. It's really okay. There were times when the disciples were criticized by Jesus for having little faith. Several times. Guys, God's grace doesn't wait for you to strengthen your faith. It doesn't wait for you to strengthen your own faith because you can't strengthen your own faith. You can't do what only God can do. Philippians 1.29, Ephesians 2.8 and 9, 2 Peter 1.1, Acts 3.16, all tell us faith is a gift of God that's given to us. So if, if, if we want to be kind of rid of a consumeristic faith that, and, 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 and press into a deeper faith, if we want to get rid of this kind of faith or move on from this faith that tends to fail us when things don't go our ways or our felt needs aren't provided for or God's not doing enough to keep our faith, if we want to move on from that kind of faith into a faith that's deeper, into a faith that's sure, it's only going to be by God's grace and power. And I believe right now, in this very instant, there are storehouses and storehouses of God's grace that have already been purchased by Jesus, that has already been applied to your account, applied to your life, waiting to be poured out into every facet of your being by the Holy Spirit that's prepared to set you free from the kind of faith that's trapped in wanting God's stuff more than wanting Him. And it fails you when you don't get it. 
It's the kind of faith that, that's, that, 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 that's the kind of grace and prayer that we're sitting here and we say, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. You know, Romans, Romans 10, you don't have to turn there. Romans 10 says, faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing what? The word of Christ. I love how much y'all know your Bibles. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. So, let me preach a little bit. Are you still enduring suffering that doesn't seem to end no matter how much you ask God to take it away? God's grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in your weaknesses. Are you afraid that your circumstances are too severe and just will never let up? Take heart, Jesus has overcome the world, and in him, you and I are more than conquerors. Are, are, you, are you doubting that God cares enough about you to provide you with the things that you need? Oh, oh, are you not of more value than the birds of the air who neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns? Your heavenly Father knows precisely what you need. Or are you... Are you getting nearer and nearer to the end of your life and dying is your current greatest fear? Hear this. Jesus has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. God will not abandon your soul to the grave. Or are you feeling so incredibly isolated and lonely in life? Oh, don't, don't be afraid or terrified. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Or maybe you can't find freedom from something in your past and it just keeps persisting in your life. Wait, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. Look, God is doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not see it? I am making a way in the wilderness and rivers in the dry wastelands. Can we agree with one faith, with one spirit, with one heart that Jesus is enough? Can we agree? We say amen in agreement. Amen. Friends, I, I I can only preach preach this to you, and I struggle at that intensely. I can't build your faith. But Jesus can. And so we don't come to this room ex with, with, with the desperate need to see our faith rise. We, we come to this room to be edified by one another, to pursue Christ who can build our faith. And move us on from a self-centered, sign-requiring, consumeristic faith impress us deeply into a kind of faith that says Jesus is enough. And so what I want to do right now as we close, I just want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I can't be your relationship with Jesus. That's got to be between you and, and him. But I think you know who you are if this seems to describe the nature of your kind of trust in him. And so maybe just right now you need to do some confession and repentance before the Lord. Acknowledge the state of your faith. 
and ask him, help my unbelief. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.